All right, well, thank you. It's, it's really good to be here. We have a lot of friends in this city, uh, and it's a lot of fun to see you as we are here for this visit. Um, this is my wife, Lisa. We, we live in Kansas City currently. Um, I grew up in rural Indiana, central Indiana, uh, and uh, she near Chicago. We met at Taylor University, which I'm assuming that many of you, if you know Dave Burden, you know of Taylor University. Um, I think he was born on campus. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, we, come, we come from Taylor. Uh, we met there our first weekend and uh, we're married a month to the day after we graduated. And uh, we lived in Nashville for a couple of years right after uh, we, we were married. And uh, then we moved to St. Louis for seminary where the Lord gave us the first two of our four children. Uh, we have a son and then three daughters. Uh, and then in 2003, we moved to Kansas City and that's where we live now. So that's just a little introduction um, to the Ramseys. Uh, our kids are home with my folks right now. Um, but I wanna say by way of introduction about me something that I don't want it to hit you as, as, as a proud, arrogant thing that I'm saying, but I want you to hear what it is that I'm saying. And that is that um, Maybe the best way of giving an, intro, an introduction to who I am as a person is to tell you a little bit, little bit about some of my earliest memories as a, uh, as a Christian and coming to know the Lord. And that is to say, and it has to do with what we're talking about this morning in the text, is that from my earliest memories of following Jesus, I've had this clear sense since Christ came into my life that when he did, everything changed everything. And, and I don't mean that to say that I became awesome. I mean to say that when he came into my life, nothing was the same as it was before, that he was changing everything. I'm still a broken person. I'm still a, a sinner with an incredible capacity for narcissism. Um, but, but the Lord is working and there's nothing in my life that is unaffected and is meant to be untouched by his work in the lives of those who trust him and love him. And so my earliest memory as a high school student of being a believer was that something real happened, might be the best way to say it. Something real, something just fundamentally real. And our text talks about this that we wanna look at today. If you have a Bible, we're gonna read Colossians chapter three, verse eight, the first half of it. So it's just a short verse, and it deals with anger, but it puts anger in a context. You can't talk about areas of sin in Scripture in a vacuum as though you just have to deal with this one thing and then deal with this other thing and then think about this other thing. They're all connected and they all connect to the heart of who we really, really are in our relationships with each other and in our relationship with the Lord. And this text talks about that when it talks about anger inside of us. And so I'm going to read it. Um, Colossians 3, 8 a, so the first half. But now, Paul writes, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, and malice. Let me pray before we unpack this. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the folks here, and, and Lord, I ask that you would meet us in this time in a powerful way, that you would help us to see our own hearts, help us to see even now be bringing to mind places where we have anger in our lives that we need to deal with and that we need to recognize. And, and Father, I, I thank you that your word is true, and I thank you that it is so practical on so many levels for us and that, it's, um, that you're meeting us here in this place. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen. Who here, I need, I need 
Who here has the holiest looking Bible in the room? Just hold it up if you've got it. I want to see the holiest looking. Okay, there's an iPhone in the back. Yeah, there's a lot of, that was, ooh, that's a good one. All right. And any, nobody else? Did you, oh, oh, there, woo, it's the vision. There it is right there. Okay, there's this film that came out not too long ago called The Book of Eli. And it's the story of, uh, it's this post-apocalyptic world where there's this guy and he's making his way west. And he's got something, he's a quest, you know, and he's carrying with him the last existing copy of the Bible. And uh, his job is to get it to some unknown destination and to keep it out of the hands of people who would use it for evil. And one of the things that they do in the film is when you see the book, it is the holiest looking book that you've ever seen. It's thick and dark and mysterious and it has this clasp on it that it's not just for anybody. And then it's wrapped in this shroud that he keeps on his person everywhere he goes or he strategically hides it. And what's happening there is the filmmakers are wanting us to understand as we're watching, this is a sacred text. And to be sure, it is a sacred text. I mean, it is, right? Scripture is nothing less than the story of the restoration of the brokenness and the fallenness of man to the maker and lover of our souls who we were made for relationship with from the foundation of the world. Job, the book of Job tells us that it's full of mysteries that are just too wonderful to comprehend. So it is every bit a sacred text. But we make a mistake. We make a mistake when we look at this and we regard it as something that is just a text that is written by God for God and for his heavenly realm. We make a mistake there. Like we're eavesdropping into an otherworldly dialogue that's written in some ancient runes and we're just trying to decipher and maybe glean a little bit of wisdom from the pages of this book that is not meant for us but for some distant heavenly culture. And we've misunderstood the nature of Scripture. That's not the nature of Scripture. And the text that we just read illustrates this so well that the Bible is squarely, knowingly for us. It's for us. It's really for us. We're intended to be the audience. We're meant to resonate with the Holy Scripture as the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. And so when we pick up the pages of Scripture, we're not just reading some ancient document that's written for another people in another time and another culture, but we're reading timeless words that are meant for us, that are inspired by the Holy Spirit, though cultures have changed and technologies have advanced. And we're people who still struggle with basically the same stuff. We still struggle with idolatry and fear and lack of identity and who we are and our place in this world and broken relationships. Everywhere we go, we struggle with these things, our spiritual poverty. And so I love that in the pages of Scripture, in the big, thick, black, leather-bound, gold-leaf pages, you find words that say to us right here and right now, look, your anger, it's not good, and it's not good for you, and it's not going to lead anywhere good. Holding on to it, it's going to mess you up. 
We have this in the pages of scripture. So instead of shining a light on some forgotten culture, it's shining a light on us. And it's saying this book is about God and his relationship with you and it's for you. And in this text that we're looking at today, there's two words at the beginning that we might skip over, but they're just so significant to understanding why any guy like Paul, any missionary would go into a place where he doesn't really know people and he's getting to know them and he would start to tell them, hey, you know what, put to death this, 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 and this laundry list of things. And he starts the text with these two words, but now, but now, and that's indicating that something has changed. I said earlier that, that for me, in my relationship with the Lord, that, that my earliest memories were that something had changed. I want to tell you a specific, a specific story of one of those moments. Um, I was in high school. I'd, I was probably a sophomore, I guess, in high school. And uh, in the country in Indiana, I lived in a house where my nearest neighbor was, um, you know, a quarter of a mile away. Uh, and uh, there weren't many. And, and there had been this great snow. And uh, it just, the whole landscape was just blanketed and, and white. And there were all these trees, and it was just beautiful. Indiana's very flat, and you could just see forever. And it was very cold. And I had dressed up, gotten all my winter clothes on, and I'd gone outside, and I was just walking around, and I was marveling at what God had done, you know? And we had these, this cluster of blue spruce trees that were maybe as high as the ceiling in this room. And... Um, and they just, it was like a, a Thomas Kincaid painting, you know, where there was just this tree with just these billows of snow resting on the branches. And I was, I was worshiping, you know, and, and I walk over to, this tr- to these trees and I'm just, I'm looking at them and I see something catches my eye about, about, you know, eye level on one of the branches. There's something and it's gray. It doesn't, it's out of place, it doesn't belong. And so I walk over to it and it's a bird just sitting there. And I, I get closer to it, and it begins to dawn on me it's a, it's, a, it's a bird that's not alive anymore. It's a dead bird. But my head is in this place where, Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is the splendor and the glory of your creation. And I pick up that bird, and I hold it in my hands, and I look at it, and I feel the wind ruffling its feathers as though it's maybe starting to move again. And I say, God, you made this bird. You you know the number of feathers that it has. You know when it was born and you know when it died. And if you wanted, you could make this bird come back to life. Now I have to ask you a question. Who is terrified that I'm going to tell you that he brought that bird back to life? (laughs) Show of hands. Come on now. I had this moment. The bird didn't come back to life. But I had a moment where it occurred to me right then and there as I'm holding this bird and what hit me I'm a person who believes in resurrection. I believe that the God who knows me and loves me takes what was dead and brings it back to life and that he could do it right now. And that thought blew my mind in the moment that I believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
And I believe that God does this. Paul says to the Colossians, but now, understand that those two words are nothing less than you count on. All your eggs are in the basket of the resurrection of the dead. You believe now that you used to walk a certain way. That's what he says in Colossians 3, 7, just, just the verse before. He talks about these earthly desires. He said, in these, you once walked when you were living in them, but now everything is different. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? He's telling them, look, there was a way it was, and there's the way it is. And there's a chasm between the two that Christ has occupied. And it's a beautiful thing. And when Paul is saying to them, but now, there's something liberating about this because he's telling the Colossians, don't pretend your past isn't your past. Don't pretend that you didn't walk in the way that you used to walk. Don't pretend that you didn't live the way that you used to live because you did and it's part of your story. There's a tendency for us to want to say of our pasts, well, I don't really want to talk about that or really even own it publicly because I'm a Christian now and how would that look? You know how it would look? Real, you know? It would look like your coming to Christ was because of something and not just that you were joining another group, you know? That, that you're saying, yeah, I used to be dead in my sins and trespasses and I have been made alive together with him. Paul says in Colossians 3, verses one through three, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, then you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so just as real as your past is, this is real too. That if you're in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is fundamentally real. And you shouldn't pretend otherwise. So if our past failures and struggles have shaped our lives in real ways, how much more then should the one who took those failures and struggles to the cross shape our futures? That's what Paul's getting at when he says, listen, I'm gonna give you a litany of things you need to stop. But it's in this context of because of what Christ has done in a response to his grace, not in order to achieve his grace. Do you understand that difference? That when we're called to obey the Lord, it's not so that he'll smile upon us and say you're worthy of salvation, but it's because we're saying, because you've already smiled upon me and redeemed me and loved me, my obedience is a response to that. It's not earning anything, but it is a response to that. We have to get rid of old ways. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, put them away, put them away. And why? They don't fit. They don't fit in the life that we're called to live as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the beautiful truths of the gospel is that we're not left to save ourselves. We can't make ourselves presentable in the sight of God. I can't achieve some level of righteousness that will get his attention. We can't make ourselves presentable to him. We have to be cloaked in the righteousness of Christ if we're to stand before the Lord and live. But the gospel tells us that Christ, he took our sins upon himself on the cross and that he did. He clothed us in his righteousness. When we stand before the Lord, we stand, as Colossians 1.21 says, we stand holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
That's an amazing thought, that if you're in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is covering you to the extent that when the Father looks upon you, you're holy in his sight. That's an amazing thought. So this call then to put away sinful behaviors and attitudes isn't a call to make ourselves worthy. It's a call to live honestly before the Lord, recognizing that the Lord means to change us. He means to transform us, that there's no area of our life that he's not invested in and that he's not tweaking and changing. And tweaking is such a small word for what we really mean, isn't it? That he's revolutionizing. Rebirth. And so Paul says, put it away. And it's an image uh, in the Greek that is, a, is of shedding a garment, taking it off, just throwing it off. It's this idea of dealing with old habits mercilessly, you know, of calling them what they are, not coddling them, not nurturing them as though they have any power to fill us up in any way, but instead to regard these old habits and these old behaviors as unwelcome intruders that mean to harm us. They don't have anything good for us. They're not friends, Put them off like an old garment, throw it off. We're to know that if we let them take up residence, that they're going to be calling the shots before too long in our hearts. And so Paul is saying, deal honestly. Deal honestly before the Lord with your sin. Be thoughtful about it. I worked at Covenant Seminary for a while while I was a student there, and uh, I had to order a new laptop computer. And... um, when the computer came, this was before um, uh, wireless internet stuff, this, you know, when we were all hardwired in. And, uh, and I had this, I couldn't get online. I, I, I was about as technologically savvy as a monkey at the time, and, and I couldn't, I mean, you know, I'm banging on the thing, and I could not get this thing to get online. And so I called the IT department. Any of you work with, well, any of you IT people? IT department people? This might be dear to your heart then. The IT guy comes over, helpful as ever, sits down in my chair and says, so what's the problem? And I say, I, I've tried everything, I can't, I can't. And he says, well, okay. And he gets this little smirk in the corner of his mouth and he says, I think what we're talking about here is a user obtuseness error. <laughs> and I, you know, I just, I didn't get it, you know? And so I just kind of looked at him blankly and he said, well, I've isolated the problem and it's between your keyboard and the back of your chair. That's... <laughs> And then I was like, okay, <laughs> thank you. But what he did is he flipped a little switch on the side of my computer that let me go online and then said, you're good to go. And it was just that easy. It was seriously, I just had to flip a switch that was physically a switch on the side of my laptop. Now he named my problem, didn't he? He named it. He said, <laughs> well, he said it's a user obtuseness error. But when he flipped that switch it w- and he left, there was this clear sense in which now you know something. I've named it for you and you know it. And if I have to come back here again for this, the problem isn't the switch on the side of your computer. The problem's you at that point, right? There's power in naming things. It's easy for us, isn't it, to drift into sinful patterns, into caustic ways of relating with each other when we're not thinking about how we're relating with each other where we're just life is happening to us we develop habits and patterns but we don't name them and so they have this power over us because we, we, we're not even really aware that they're there there's power though in naming things and bringing light to things that are hidden in shadow and saying it's this let me tell you what it is it's, it's this 
And today's verse does that. Paul names, he names some relational problems that the people are having, specifically anger. Think about anger. Don't just be a person who's walking around angry. Think about anger. I'm naming it for you. Now interact specifically with it. Wrath, malice. If the previous verses in this chapter call for believers to deal with uh, and to flee sins of the flesh, which we talked about right in previous weeks, you talked about uh, immorality and you talked about idolatry and lust and, and those sorts of things, these sins of the flesh. Paul is, is focusing now here a little bit more on sins that might be what we would call a little bit more relational in nature, how we relate to each other and how we engage in our relationships when, with one another. These are social destructive ways of relating. And Paul doesn't just say, fix your relationships. He says, anger, wrath, and malice specifically. Think about these things. Think about these things. And so I want to invite you to do that. Think about where you're angry. Think about where you're, you're and you may not even know what's the difference between anger and wrath and malice. They have a, an, an, a fascinating relationship, those three things, anger, wrath, and malice. Anger, that's what you feel inside. Would you just, it's that smoldering, burning feeling of, of contempt and unsettledness. The thing about anger is you can be anger, angry, and people won't necessarily know. It just sort of burns within, you know? And, and we, have, we all have our ways of being angry and of dealing with anger. And if you ever meet somebody who says, I just don't get angry, they don't mean it. They don't mean it. And today, if that's you, I want to help you name that, okay? Proverbs 6.27 says this, can a man scoop embers into his lap without getting burned? If you think that you can be angry inside and it'll just stay there, you're wrong because there's such a thing as wrath. Anger's what you keep in. Wrath is what comes out from it. Anger is I want to punch that guy in the nose. Wrath is the punch in the nose, right? I want to tear that guy's reputation to bits. Wrath is the tearing that reputation to bits. So anger is what's inside. Wrath is anger let loose. Anger we keep in, wrath we let out. Malice. Malice is the man behind the curtain. Malice is the mastermind. Malice is the one who says, this anger, let's do something with it constructive. Let's set a goal and let's achieve the end. And the end is, let's harm them. It's the desire to harm. Anger's the feeling. Wrath is the expression of it, but malice is the choir director. Malice is the one who's saying, ah, uh, yeah. Let's really think strategically about this before we really go at it. Because you might want to scream, but maybe a soft word would hurt worse, you know? That's what malice is. So these three relate to each other. Anger is the powder keg. Malice lights the fuse. Wrath is the explosion. And Paul says, think about them. Think about them. Because for some of us, we can hold anger inside for years. And just at the sight of somebody, we just don't think that one day that won't come out. And if it doesn't, it's only because you've killed the relationship already. And that's how your malice has said, I'm angry. Let's just kick them to the curb, you know? So anger, wrath, and malice. 
because of the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, because it's a real thing, Paul says, look at yourself. Examine yourself. Examine the real ways that you live and that you relate to people and name them. Name them. See if they belong in the life of following after Jesus. And if they don't, Paul says, get rid of them mercilessly. Anger, wrath, and malice. The holy pages of Scripture say they're not going to help you. They're not going to help you. Now, maybe there's somebody on your mind where you're thinking, yeah, I know who I'm angry with. I'm sitting right next to him or I'm supposed to see him later today. Maybe it's family, maybe it's friends, maybe it's coworkers, and you're thinking about this, and this relationship comes to your mind, and, and you're naming it, and you're saying, yeah, I see it. I see this relationship of, of the malice is there, and the anger is there, the wrath is, is surely going to come. If you hold on to it, it's gonna come out. So how do you set it aside? That's the question. Put these things aside. How do you do it? You do it as one who believes in the resurrection. And you say, you know, what if instead of throwing a punch with my fist or my words, I repent? What if I confess, even my anger? What if I'm convinced I'm not really the one who's mostly in the wrong, but what if you can say, yeah, but I've been angry for three months, so I'm a little in the wrong. And you go to the person that you're angry with and you say, listen, I'm sorry, I've been angry at you and it's not right for me to have been angry with you for as long as I have and not sought peace. What happens then? Does it just drive the relationship further apart at that point? Not usually. Usually it brings people together. It draws people closer. Your words aid in reconciliation and not destruction and the beauty of it. Remember, squarely, knowingly for people is this isn't rocket science and this isn't God parting the Red Sea. This is the way of love. So just love each other. Love each other humbly. Confess your sins one to another. When we're angry, we don't want to do that. But when we do it, it's the way of love. Last thought. <clears throat> if we find in Scripture a verse like this that tells us, don't be angry, don't let wrath and malice rule you, let me flip it upside down and put this thought out for you. Implicit in this command to not damage your relationships is a command to be in relationships where you can damage them in this way. You know what I mean? There's this call to be in relationships in the kind of proximity where I have the capacity to really wound you and you me. And scripture says you can't live without those kinds of relationships. You have to have, this is what marriage is, right? I have an incredible capacity to hurt Lisa and I do it sometimes and I could go a lot further, but it's because I'm the closest person to her, right? We're called to live in proximity, relationally, and the warnings of Scripture to us today are saying, don't destroy that, honor that, cherish that, regard that as a holy thing that God has given you for the glory of his name and for your joy 
in this world. Anger, wrath, and malice. You see, we don't put those things off so that God will say, finally, you're worthy. We put them off because they just don't fit. They just don't. They don't fit. We enter into relationships then with people even when we see their faults and their quirks and their failures. And we do it on purpose, knowing that we may well become the object of their wrath and their malice someday, and they may become the object of ours. And we enter in anyway, because the glorious gospel truth of the book of Colossians, what's prevailing all the way through it, is that Christ is stronger than our sin. He prevails over our sin. His grace is greater than our failures. His love prevails over our relational poverty. And so to put aside anger and wrath and malice, we have to acknowledge not only their, their power, but also their presence in our lives. We have to name them. We have to look and say, Lord, search me and know me. And understand that the scripture is for us. It's, it knows us. It speaks to us. And it tells us, in effect, look, you're prone to get angry. You're going to get angry. But it won't go anywhere good. Now, there's righteous anger. Being offended and affronted by the things that offend the Lord, but that's not what he's talking about here. There's grace enough in Christ to not let anger rule you because of those two words, but now, but now. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for passages like Psalm 139 where David prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, would you make that our prayer this week as we think about our anger and we think about our relationships with each other. Father, I pray that you would, you would make us honest about places where we're holding in anger, thinking that as long as we hold it in, nothing will come of it. Would you help us to see that plenty has already come of it uh, through distance and through coolness in our ways of relating to each other when we're called to be warm. Uh, Father, I thank you for these people here, and Lord, I pray your blessing upon them. Thank you that you are sovereign over all. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.